This is Anthems. Hi, I'm Alma Sohini, a multidisciplinary writer and creator. Much of my work centres marginalised voices as I'm committed to taking steps to help dismantle all forms of systemic oppression. Your word of the day is normativity. As I race towards my mid-thirties, societal pressure to quote-unquote settle down with one person for the rest of my life is ever-increasing. It's almost always fated as life's most normal aspiration. Yet the marriage model centred in Western Anglo-based cultures is an inherently oppressive institution. Its primary function is a legal tool to consolidate wealth and power. Married couples are the state-sanctioned blueprint for normative economic units. But the feminist movement has shown that this near-universal deference to this model ultimately hinders the total emancipation of women. Because marriages are currently the only structures in which we are actively encouraged and enabled by the state to reproduce the workforce. When we apply an intersectional lens to our understanding of the full spectrum of sexuality, it becomes enragingly obvious that most cultures with different views on sex, relationships and marriage have been, and continue to be, willfully suppressed. Understanding historical attitudes to gender identities and sexual practices is essential to debunk monoheteronormativity and the binary of masculine and feminine as the unwavering ancestral cultural norm. A case in point is the new Relationships and Sex Education curriculum, abbreviated to RSE, which became compulsory in all UK schools from September 2020. Despite the three-year drafting process, which saw input from a public consultation where over 40,000 people contacted the Department for Education, the new curriculum still gives undue precedent to the marriage model centred in Western Anglo-based cultures. As a child of the 1990s, I grew up under the shadow of Section 28, a piece of legislation which enshrined Prime Minister Thatcher's dangerous homophobia repackaged as quote-unquote family values. Despite the decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales in 1967, Thatcher's laws meant that until it was repealed in 2003, schools could not teach students about LGBTQIA issues or even acknowledge that homosexuality existed and actually had been accepted in most cultures throughout history. This is, for the most part, due to the homophobic penal codes exported to British colonies during empire. It has long been my feeling that many people have been slow to make the connection that the oppressive structures which disempower and endanger black and indigenous people of colour worldwide are the same systems that ban abortion, restrict sex education and contraception, and deny LGBTQIA rights. If we look back, it was colonial and imperialist ideas of gender binaries that wiped out pre-existing fluidity within gender presentation and sexual practices. And if we are to radically interrogate injustice, then decolonizing thought production is a start. 
Let's not forget that in many regions, family structures prior to colonialism were different. Certain quote-unquote modern and radical trends, such as non-monogamy, were historically just a way of life in certain cultures. In Ghana, where I take my heritage from, pre-colonial family structures were often polygamous. A quote-unquote alpha husband might have four wives living in separate hut dwellings close to his own. His quote-unquote wives would all engage in sexual activity with him for both pleasure and to have a family. I've imagined what that kind of arrangement might have been like. Introducing cassava farmers Yao, Afua and Amma. He placed his callous fingertips in the dip between the bones at her wrist and then ran them across the smooth scar tissue that had formed there each time the boiling stew had spat on her while she stirred the pot. He covered her with soft kisses and ran his tongue back and forth over its smoothness. He pressed his body to hers as she felt him rise against her. Afua fetched her mat. With a single flick, she rolled it out onto the floor and knelt. She guided his head down, past her stomach, past her hips and uncrossed her legs. He placed one hand onto the cool, hard mud of the hut while the other massaged her buttocks, the colourful strings of beads at her hips glinting. She was on her hands and knees. He couldn't see her facial expression, but he felt her pelvic floor relax to let him in. They started slow. She exhaled and took him further inside. They both shuddered and then found a new rhythm. Amma saw her youngest one, Essie, skip into Afua's hut. As she chased inside after her, she heard Yao's grunts and Afua's moans. Essie stopped and saw Afua's wrapper untied and crumpled at her ankles. Yao finished and retied Afua's wrapper. As he swept out of the hut, he beckoned Essie over and ruffled her little cropped head. He glanced up and saw Amma looking on by the entrance. They shared equal pride for their small but mischievous daughter. He pinched her ear and she laughed. Afua shooed all of them out of her hut. Essie ran ahead, shouting to her playmates while Yao and Amma fetched the machete, rake and hoe. He told her he'd come by her hut at dawn before they all set off for the farm. Smiling, Amma went back to join the braiding circle. Collectively, we desperately need to acknowledge, respect and nurture all the other ways we can physically relate to one another and accept them as legitimate rather than alternative. And we must seek to be the architects of our own emancipation from the discriminatory societal structures of capitalism, patriarchy and racism so that we can build a sustainable future that is truly inclusive and safe for all. Normativity, definition, noun, 
the state of conforming to or setting a standard or norm, following social norms and rules.